0: Welcome back to our BTK Absite review. We're continuing with part 2 of Critical Care. Just as a reminder, please visit Amazon and download the show notes which are in the form of an ebook. You can search for Behind the Knife or Absite and you'll find our Absite podcast companion. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to our podcast and leave us reviews. These help us out and we're looking forward to more suggestions from all of you about what you want to hear post Absite. Good luck studying, and let's get into it.
1: Okay, let's talk about pulmonary embolus. Uh, again, a favorite topic. What's the uh, most common vital sign changes you'll see with a PE?
0: So the most common is going to be a tachycardia and uh, hypoxia. Okay. Most common, most common two and I think, a pulmonary embolism.
1: How about respiratory rate? Uh,
0: typically increased. They're Good. In the, uh, so tachycardia and tachypnea and acid-base status? So these patients are going to, because of their increased respiratory rate, are typically going to have a respiratory acidosis, alkalosis, I'm sorry. Good, respiratory alkalosis.
1: And what's our diagnostic studies that we can use?
0: So you can, you can start with an EKG uh, with the workup and then uh, move on to a chest x-ray. Those are two good starting points. And okay, then, but,
1: but if they're asking you on the ab site, your answer is not going to be an EKG or a chest x-ray yes, for sir. diagnosis of PE. What's your answer going to be
0: You want to get a, in a,
1: 2017?
0: You want to get a CT w- with, a, with a, a PE protocol.
1: Yeah, CT pulmonary arteriogram is now the diagnostic study of choice. Okay, how about D-dimer?
0: Uh, a D dimer uh, is not typically very helpful if you have a CT scan readily available, uh, but if you have a high suspicion for a PE, it's a, it, it might be a good test to um, lean lean you one direction or another. So
1: this is another one I think of like procalcitonin, right? So if you have a normal D dimer, that's pretty good for ruling out a PE, but if you have an elevated Again, you can have an elevator for a whole bunch of reasons, especially in the surgical area. If you had major surgery, it's going to be elevated. Okay, and now you want to anticoagulate this patient. How are you going to anticoagulate them?
0: So uh, typically I would start with a uh, therapeutic dosing of heparin, uh, put them on a heparin drip, and um, and then once, uh, if they're stable and and. Uh, don't need any further treatment for the actual PE, uh, they'll remain on that treatment. You're going to bridge them over to Lovinox. Okay. Dr- bridge them over to Warfarin with Lovinox.
1: Good. And how about the role of thrombolytics?
0: So uh, you can do this in, in a couple different ways, either uh, catheter-directed thrombolytics or systemic uh, thrombolytics. Uh, you Generally, uh, giving systemic thrombolytics in this situation is – isn't recommended there's really two indications
1: one is solid indication one's relative so who's the patient who would put push lytics on who's somebody who e? is unstable hemodynamic instability is an indication for pushing lytics okay unless they have a contraindication like you know a recent surgery a recent head bleed um and, and then, then if, one you, other relative one.
0: if you have evidence on uh, either EKG or an echo that you get of, of right heart failure along with signs and symptoms of right heart failure, right dysfunction. Yeah, so
1: echocardiographic evidence of right heart dysfunction. Those are generally the reasons why you would push lytics.
2: What about, the, what about the role of catheter-directed thrombo, thrombolytics? Is that something you can see, you would see or you would think would be starting to show up on the ab site?
1: That it, it might, and there's not a whole lot of – the problem is there's not a whole lot of evidence of saying when it should be done, when it's better than mm-hmm. systemic thrombolytics. I, I think if it's on the ab site, it's just going to be a question of, of which patient would you give lytics to. And okay. it's, it's going to be either unstable or the patient with right heart strain or right heart failure on that. Gotcha,
2: echo. gotcha. And then –
0: Any surgical options? So uh, there are surgical options. You can do a pulmonary endarterectomy. Okay. Uh,
1: And what's that called?
0: uh, Sorry, embolectomy. And that's a Trendelenburg procedure.
1: Good. So a Trendelenburg procedure.
0: And this would be done when? This is going to be in a patient that has a relatively proximal uh, thrombus that is is is. Uh, physically fit enough to go through that operation. Yeah, and this this again
1: would be the patient is unstable. They might have a contraindication to lytics, or it's it's an intraoperative diagnosis. Uh, it, you know, it's gonna be relatively uncommon, but uh, there is a surgical option. And then, of course, there's always the old favorite, the EKG change
2: in PE. Well, it's the uh, often tested rarely seen s1 q3 t3 yeah, this um,
1: assumes you read an ekg
2: right right and i think it's only present about 15 percent of the time with the pe the most common ekg change is going to be sinus tachycardia
1: good uh, okay let's uh, talk about some cardiovascular physiology so we talk a lot about cvp so what is cvp what is it what is it actually assessing
2: so it's it's assessing your um, end diastolic pressure of your right ventricle. It's your central venous pressure. Good, and we're using that as a surrogate for what? Because because if I really want it, what I really
1: want to know is not the pressure.
2: You want to know the um, volume status. Yeah. So so it's a surrogate for right ventricular end
1: diastolic volume, right? It's not a great right. surrogate, but but that's how we use it. Um, so, how about the wedge pressure?
2: So, wedge pressure is um, is measuring your left ventricle uh, left ventricle end diastolic pressure. Good, and it's a surrogate for. Uh, it's a surrogate f- for um, your uh, 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 preload in your in your left ventricle. Well, your left your left ventricular
1: diastolic volume. So it's, yeah. it's the same thing volume, as on the yeah. right. So, so what these are telling you is your filling pressures or your volume of the heart. And this should approximate the end diastolic volume, all other things being equal. Unfortunately, all other things are not always equal. And so if we want to calculate cardiac output, what would our formula be?
2: Uh, so your cardiac output is going to be your, your stroke volume uh, times your heart rate. Good. And then if we wanted to do cardiac index... And that's uh, then you you divide that by um, the uh, patient's height, body body, or surface bi- area. body surface area. Yeah, yeah. So divided by body surface area squared. Is there a square in there? Nope. Just oh, divided just, by okay. body surface area.
1: All right. So. Uh, we used to get a lot of questions about the swan gan's patterns i think they become less common but mm-hmm. but it's probably still good to know and and you can look at a table to know the the typical swan for hemorrhagic shock septic shock and cardiogenic shock so just real quickly what would be the hallmark uh, on a hemorrhagic shock patient
2: so hemorrhagic shock you're going to have a you know low cardiac output you're going to have a high systemic vascular resistance and what uh, about filling pressures? Uh, filling pressures are going to be low. CVP and wedge, good. CVP, yep, low. And how's that
1: going to be different from septic shock?
2: So septic shock, you're going to have a high cardiac output. You're going to have low uh, systemic vascular resistance, um, and your filling pr- your your um, filling pressures are going to be uh, normal low to normal normal. and then how about cardiogenic shock so cardiogenic shock high systemic vascular resistance low cardiac output high filling pressures yeah and 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 if they give
1: you a markedly low cardiac output or index it's cardiogenic shock because none of the others will will have a low cardiac index all right and and unfortunately there's always a couple formulas you have to know and remember Uh, one of those is for oxygen delivery so Mm -hmm. how do we calculate oxygen delivery
2: so uh oxygen delivery, delivery is first you take your cardiac output then you multiply you multiply that by the hemoglobin and then there's the, the times 1.36 and then times the uh, the oxygen saturation. Good. And and the nice thing about that
1: formula is if you know it if they ask you a question about how can I improve oxygen delivery it's right those are the only yep. things you can do to improve delivery. The hemoglobin, ox- there's saturation. hemoglobin, there's oxygen saturation, and there's cardiac output. So you you can improve it by improving one of those three factors. Then a very small proportion from the dissolved oxygen in in blood as well. Yeah, which is essentially negligible. negligible. Okay, then how about oxygen consumption?
2: So uh, oxygen consumption is your your arterial... Oxygen it? content? Yeah, the oxygen content of arterial minus the oxygen content of your venous times your cardiac output.
1: Good. And so, so that one you really have to have a central li- central line in to measure the central venous mm-hmm. O2 or the mixed venous O2. And then the re- only reason to get that really is to calculate an extraction ratio. So what's an extraction ratio so looking like? So
2: that's like? your oxygen consumption de- divided by your oxygen delivery. Good. And and what can increase or decrease that extraction ratio? Uh, sepsis is a big one uh, that that can uh, uh, that will decrease the ratio. Um, cardiac failure, anemia, um, you know, fever, seizures, those type of things.
1: Okay, yeah. So sepsis, cardiac failure, anemia, hypoxia, fever, seizure. And then, what is a mixed venous blood gas? Again, we used to talk about that a lot more. Um, it still shows up on the the boards. Uh, so, so this where is where do you check a mixed venous blood gas?
2: Generally, from? off of your you know your central line, out of your you know right atrium or your uh, SVC. So that would be a central venous O2. Yeah. What's a mixed venous blood gas? Is it off the Swan's. It's off the Swan, yeah.
1: but where are you drawing it from? The um, pulmonary. pulmonary artery yeah the pulmonary artery and and the theory there was that should be the point where your venous oxygen saturation is the absolute lowest because it's right before the blood goes into the lungs what we found is central venous o2 is a pretty good surrogate for mixed venous gas which is another reason we've gotten away from the swans but that's still a question that they often ask okay so we talked about this in trauma a little bit uh, but we'll get into it in a little bit more detail. So this is a 75-year-old female who's on Coumadin. INR is 4.5 in a car crash, and she's got a major head bleed. So what are we going to do to quickly reverse her? Because she needs an emergent craniotomy.
2: Well, if it's available, we'll do the PCC. So, uh, and that will rapidly and predictably uh, normalize her INR.
1: Good. And And especially someone who needs an intervention urgently, other advantages of it, especially in an elderly patient, are it's a lot, a lot less volume than FFP. Um, okay, now this patient's on Pradaxa, so, also yeah. called dabigatran.
2: So dabigatran, Pradaxa, on the upside the answer is going to be dialysis. Dialysis is how you, how you reverse it. Good. The, the answer. Well, the answer will be dialysis, although there's another
1: option now.
2: Oh, there, so there's a there's a, I I don't know, there's a monoclonal antibody uh, yes. that's being developed. Is it, is it approved now? It is, it is FDA approved. Okay. It's called
1: PraxBind, Prax- yeah. which is easy. Binds Pradaxa. Uh, I, I don't know if that'll work its way in the app site this year. Um, it, I would guess definitely by next year, but it may even be in this year. So, so your options would be either dialysis or PraxBind for Pradaxa or dabigatran. Now, how about a pixaban or rivaroxaban?
2: Uh, so, no real anecdote uh, an- or antidote, but uh, PCC will give you at least a partial reversal. So, you should still give them PCC.
1: Okay. So, a quick review of our anticoagulant agents. Uh, how does Coumadin work?
2: So, Coumadin... Um, uh, it inhibits your vitamin K dependent factors to 2 7 9 and 10 uh, as well as protein C and S
1: okay and then how about our novel anticoagulants so and let's say we'll start with the apixaban or rivaroxaban
2: uh so these are uh, factor 10a inhibitors good and and how is it easy
1: to remember which ones are the factor 10a inhibitors which ones are the direct thrombin inhibitors
2: uh, I think they have an I. These are the ones with the I's in the name. Is that right? No, so, Am I right?
1: So, so it's very easy. Uh, the, they have the, XA. The 10A inhibitors, yeah. well, they don't just have XA, they have XA ban. Oh, okay. So just remember they ban factor 10A. So Pixaban, right. Rivaroxaban. The, the problem if you just say they have XA is Pradax also has XA. Gotcha. So, which is confusing, but it doesn't have the XA ban. That's right. So if it has XA ban, that's a 10A inhibitor. The other ones, Pradaxa is, or argatraban those are direct thrombin inhibitors, uh, which is the odd man out. Uh, and as we mentioned, there's now a, a Praxbind that can reverse those. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about nutrition. Um And uh, again, another board favorite is you're trying to figure out how much nutrition this patient needs, and someone has a great idea of let's get an indirect calorimetry or a metabolic cart. So what is that measuring?
2: So that measures uh, two main things, uh, O2 consumption and CO2 production. Good. And you
1: put those into a formula uh, that gives you the respiratory quotient. So, and and which one goes on top and which one goes on bottom?
2: So, your, uh, your, uh, um, your COT, CO2 production goes on top and divided by your um, uh, O2 con- uh, consumption. Good. So, production over consumption.
1: Good. And that essentially will tell you, so the metabolic heart will give you a resting energy expenditure, which is how many calories you need. And then it will also give you this respiratory quotient. And how do we use that respiratory quotient?
2: Uh, so if we have too high, uh, we use it uh, specifically in, you know, in our intubated ICU patients, particularly if you're having somebody, you get in trouble getting off the vent, they're having to you know, pull off too much CO2, so their respiratory quotient may be too high. So we use it to adjust the proportion of fat, protein, carbohydrates we're yeah, giving so, them in their nutrition. So it, generally,
1: it generally tells us what kind of fuels that patient is burning and and really it's most useful for telling you are you overfeeding them with carbohydrate. So what would the respiratory quotient of fat be? So fat is generally 0.7. And protein? Uh, 0.8. And carbohydrate? 1.0. Yeah, 1.0 or higher. Yeah. So if you have a high respiratory quotient that's that's 0.9 or higher, that tells you that you're maybe overfeeding them with carbohydrate which can cause respiratory problems, uh, excess CO2 production, etc. That's, again, that's always a famous, uh, favorite board question. Um, nitrogen balance, uh, I, I don't think it's talked about as much as it used to be. Uh, this is essentially, you calculate the nitrogen going in minus the nitrogen out. Um, and the nitrogen losses are generally in urine and stool. So this requires a 24-hour measurement of urine losses of nitrogen. Um, and the formula for that
2: is? Uh, for the nitrogen balance? Yep. Well, it's your mouth. so it's nitrogen in minus the uh, urine losses, minus the s- uh, stool and skin and sensible losses. So that breaks down to is the nitrogen in is the protein that you take divided by six point two five because there's six two point five grams in every gram of nitrogen. And then you you measure your 24-hour urine losses of nitrogen and your urine uh, nitrogen. And then the, you just have to remember the number four for kind of insensible losses. Good. And so and the
1: protein is in number of grams they're getting per day. So the the protein divided by 6.25, that's the end. Subtract the urine and the stool losses, and that gives you your nitrogen balance. And if you have a negative nitrogen balance, what does that tell you?
2: Uh, that means that we, you're you're in a catabolic state yeah so it means
1: it means you're losing protein um it's 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 not a great market to drive therapy but it's a good market to tell you when the patient's turning around when they get in a positive nitrogen balance you know you're gaining ground okay so when we feed someone we generally simplify it into carbohydrates proteins and fats so carbohydrate um is obviously we think it's a good thing to feed patients but it can also have some toxicities so what are the toxicities of carbohydrate and especially carbohydrate overfeeding
2: yeah so we kind of talked about this is you know the carbohydrate has a higher respiratory quotient so it's going to increase your CO2 production which can be a problem specifically for patients on a ventilator can make them hyperglycemic um, and it also could have uh, immunosuppressant uh, properties
1: good so the caloric content for carbohydrate because they'll often ask you to calculate Mm -hmm. caloric content. So every gram of carbohydrate has how many calories? Uh, Four. Good. And and if it's dextrose, you just have to remember it's 3.4, but generally it's 4 kcals per gram for carbohydrate. And when we talk about designing TPN for a patient, we talk about what percentage of the calories we should give them as carbohydrate, protein, and Mm -hmm. fat. So generally, what percentage do we give them as carbohydrate? Uh,
2: It's the majority, so about 60 to 75% should be coming from carbohydrates. Yeah, and typically that's non-protein
1: calories. So you you separate out the protein, and then of the non-protein calories, you want to give about three-quarters of it in carbohydrate and the other quarter in fat. Okay, so that brings us to lipids. Uh, again as we said it's, it's about a quarter Of your non-protein calories And how many uh, Kcals per gram Do you get out of lipid uh, So this is The higher So it's nine Yeah so this one Is, is the highest Caloric content Um there are only two essential fatty acids and what are those two uh
2: linoleic linoleic and
1: uh alpha linoleic yeah and and the significance there is patients can get a essential fatty acid deficiency so you need to make sure you're replacing those because those are the ones the body can't manufacture the toxicity of lipids
2: uh so the lipids can be
1: have a a pro-inflammatory effect good they're very pro-inflammatory um they contain arachidonic, arachidonic acids that then get processed to thromboxane, leukotrienes, et cetera, so they're pro-inflammatory. And we talk about now good fats and bad fats in terms of lipids we give patients. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are the good fats?
2: Uh, so the uh, these are the, your omega-3 fatty acids
1: or good. the good fats. And, and the bad fats are the soybean oils or the omega-6s. So if they ask you a question about lipids or which is the good or the less inflammatory, the answer is always going to be omega-3. When we talk about immunonutrition or immunonutrition formulas, those are generally ones that have omega-3 fatty acids and then some other things added that have beneficial inflammatory effects. Okay, protein. So, first, the caloric content. So, we said carbohydrate was four, fat was nine kcals per gram. Mm-hmm. How about protein? Uh, protein's four as well. Good. So, protein and carbohydrate are the same, four kcals per gram. And generally, how much protein do we want to give a patient in the ICU? Uh,
2: at least one gram per kilogram today. Um, so, generally, one to two is what you want to go for.
1: Good. Yeah. And and definitely no less than one. So, one to two grams per keg per, per day. Um There's no benefit of increasing that. So somebody who's still in negative nitrogen balance, we don't go up to three or four grams because then you just get the adverse effects. Um, How about the renal failure patient in terms of feeding them or giving them protein?
2: Uh, With renal failure, you want to... uh, be sure they're getting their essential amino acids.
1: Okay. And then how about liver failure patients? and And this has become somewhat controversial, but it's again a favorite board question. What type of amino acids do you want to give them?
2: The branch chained
1: okay. and and what's the problem with those?
2: Ah uh, they can act as you know false neurotransmitters. Yeah, and again, that's that's somewhat theoretical, but I think
1: that's still a, a board question that's commonly asked. Okay, and just in general, you have a patient who you need to start feeding, TPN or enteral?
2: If you have the option, enteral.
1: Yeah, and that's, your, that's an easy answer. Yeah. If they give you a choice, the answer is always enteral. Uh, TPN is generally associated with worse outcomes. Um, and why do we think TPN has worse outcomes?
2: Um, well, several reasons. It's, you know, you can have electrolyte imbalances. You have the patient become hyperglycemic. Uh, there is, uh, I believe that there's, I'm not sure there's ever been definitively shown, but some immunosuppressants, uh, properties with TPN. You can have cholestasis, liver failure. Um, certainly, you, you have complications of having a chronic indwelling lines, central lines, line infections, all yeah, those things. So,
1: so, line infections and pneumonias are generally thought to be higher with TPN. And then not feeding the gut, what's the complication that we think is associated with not feeding the gut?
2: Uh, well, you can have, uh, you know, atrophy of your, uh, of your villi. You can have... Um, uh, uh, the bacteria can and can seed and cross the, the barrier. It can translocate. Translocate. That's the word thank <laughs> you. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Translocation it's of bacteria. All about buzzwords. Yeah. Um, okay, so the theory is
1: that you lose the gut mucosal integrity, you get more bacterial translocation, which drives the inc- increase infections with with TPN. So so in general, if they ask you about feeding an ICU patient. How do you want to feed them, enterol or TPN? Enterol. And when do you want to start it? As soon as possible. Yeah, when? Immediately, day one. Okay, so, so it, it's 24 to 48 hours is when you want to start it. You do, they do need to be stable, so you don't want to give it to somebody who you're actively resuscitating, having increased pressure requirement. So the answer is always going to be enterol within 24 to 48 hours. And then if, you, if they can't tolerate Enerol.
2: Uh, TP, I mean TPN is better than nothing.
1: Yeah. So when would you start TPN?
2: Uh, generally, you know, day day five. Yeah, yeah. Day the three current to five. The
1: current recommendation is generally day seven. So mm. if you get to day seven okay. and you can't feed the mineral, or they're not tolerating mineral feed, that's when you would start TPN. Okay, so we'll run through quickly some nutritional deficiencies. Um, and again, these are just ones you have to know the buzzwords. So thiamine deficiency, what's the disease?
2: Uh, beriberi.
1: Okay, folate deficiency.
2: Uh, anemia, macrocytic anemia, anemia neuropathy. Good, so look for the high MCV.
1: Vitamin D? Uh, Rickets. Vitamin C? Scurvy. Vitamin K deficiency?
2: So you'll get a coagulopathy.
1: Good, and how about the zinc deficiency?
2: So uh, skin manifestation, so rash, alopecia, uh, vision changes.
1: Okay, copper deficiency. So
2: copper is a microcytic anemia, uh, pancytopenia, osteopenia. Okay, good. And we
1: already talked a little bit about about how to feed the uh, the patient. So some some controversies. So pancreatitis patient, how should we feed that patient?
2: Um. So there generally, if you can get some tube, some distal tube feeds, anal tube feeds distal um, in the small bowel, that's preferred. Um, but you can also feed them with TPN. or you okay. can also give them nutrition with TPN.
1: Okay. And, and the I'd say the classic teaching was try to get a distal feeding tube. Actually, the, the current recommendations are you can feed them. Gastric or small bowel, it hmm. actually doesn't have really any difference in terms of stimulating the pancreas. Um, when we talk about immunonutrition, which we mentioned a little earlier, what are what are the what are the main things we add into a formula to call it an immunonutrition formula? So we already talked about the good lipids or omega three yep. fatty acids, yep. uh, and then there's probably a couple other things that we often add in.
2: Yeah, so uh, glutamine and arginine are uh, are added to the um, the immunonutrition supplements.
1: Okay, and and again, those are those are the things that have classically been added, and the benefit of immunonutrition
2: uh, decreased or lower uh, infectious complications. Yeah, and that that's been the
1: general trend. Actually, hasn't been a real change in mortality, but decreased infectious complications in certain populations. Um, now, how about glutamine supplementation? We were this was very big. We were all talking about glutamine. It's gonna, you know, it's gonna feed the gut. It's pro. Mm-hmm. It's a immuno. It's a pro immunomodulatory agent. How about glutamine now for the ICU patient? Either enteral or TPN. Um, I actually don't know what the current thinking is on this. Uh, the current thinking is don't do it. Hmm. The the guidelines now all very clearly state do not use enteral. Do not use intravenous glutamine. There, there were a couple. Large trials that showed actually increased mortality, and it was specifically in patients with organ failure or shock. So the guidelines now, kind of glutamine was a huge disappointment to us. But it, but if you get asked a question about it, 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 it the answer is don't give them glutamine. Uh, it's generally contraindicated currently. Excellent. Okay. So so we did the. Um, quick fire round for trauma so we'll we'll end with a some critical care quick fire we'll just run through a couple scenarios and again okay. this is this is uh, giving you the phrase or the buzzwords from the question and and you just have to tell me what the answer is no no more discussion no additional questions no information allowed okay ready ready okay you inflate the swan gans balloon to check a wedge pressure and the patient has hemoptysis
2: so this is a ruptured uh, pulmonary artery. Good.
1: And bonus, what's the treatment?
2: You advance and blow up the balloon. Or reach, you
1: pull back and blow up the balloon. Nope. What do you do to stop the bleeding? Operate or angioembolization?
2: Oh, and uh, angioembolization. Yeah, treatment's okay. angioembolization.
1: Okay, your patient goes into a tachyarrhythmia, arrhythmia, and on the EKG, you see it is torsades de points. Magnesium. Points. IV magnesium. Good. Patient has no brain stem reflexes, fixed and dilated pupils. They're normal, tensive, and normal thermic. What's your next test to declare brain death? Uh,
2: cold or uh, cal- what do you call it? The You've cold? Done all the brainstem reflexes. Oh, okay. There's
1: none. What's your next test?
2: Uh, EEG. No?
1: Apnea test. Oh, yeah. Apnea test, yes. Right, so your apnea test. Of course. All right. Who should initially bring up organ donation with the family of this patient? You, the organ donation center coordinator, the nurse,
2: the organ donations.
1: Yeah. So, so the the textbook answer is you never bring up that discussion. Um, hyperacute rejection of a transplanted organ is mediated by
2: uh, IgE
1: or Ig cells, antibodies, both. Uh, this is hyperacute. Oh, um, antibodies. Antibodies. Acute rejection of a transplant is mediated
2: by acute rejection is uh, st- uh both cells cells, cells cells and what cells specifically uh t-cells
1: it's t-cells yeah. excellent um cyclosporine or tacrolimus what's their therapeutic effect or the mechanism of action
2: they both uh, pretty much act the same. So it's um, calcineurin,
1: IL 2. Good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Calcineurin inhibitor and, and blocks IL 2. Excellent. You have a post op day two cabbage patient who suddenly has decreased chest tube output and then goes into PEA.
2: Here's chest tube output and then PEA. Uh, so a tamponade? Yep. What are you going to do? Uh, the pericardiocentesis,
1: pericardial window. Yep. So you're going to cut his wires, and you're going to open his chest in the ICU, and you're going to evacuate that hematoma. Okay, you have a patient who's getting frequent IV doses for ad, for alcohol withdrawal, and then has an arrhythmia per the nurse. Uh, what is your EKG going to show? Prolonged QT. Good. So you have a patient with a positive urinalysis who now has a MAP of 60 and a lactate of
2: 4.5. What's your diagnosis? Y- uh, Urosepsis? What was it? I'm sorry, I missed that. So he has,
1: he has a positive UA, so okay. he has an infection. Yeah. He has a MAP of 60 and a lactate of 4.5 after fluid resuscitation.
2: Oh, septic shock.
1: Good. You have a five-year-old trauma patient who needs to be intubated. During direct laryngoscopy, his heart rate drops to 40.
2: Invasa vagal.
1: And what are you going to do? The question is going to be, what's your treatment?
2: Oh, uh you bag valve. You bag mask and stop stimulation. What do you do for the heart rate of forty? Oh, uh, atropine. Yep. So so it's a pediatric
1: direct laryngoscopy. You should either pre-treat with atropine during the intubation, or you have always have it standing by. So you emergently intubate a four-year-old trauma patient. Cuffed or uncuffed tube? Uncuffed. Cuffed. Cuffed. That's changed. So so it's cuffed tubes now for intubating okay. anything but babies. Okay. Okay. Uh, patient status post a cabbage again becomes acutely hypotensive, and the CVP and wedge pressure are now both twenty.
2: CVP and wedge pressure are both twenty. So, what's your diagnosis? Um, the heart, uh, f- heart failure. CVP. And he's got jugular venous distension. Uh, is this tamponade again? Yep. Okay.
1: And and the CVP and wedge both being twenty is. Equalization, equalization of pressures, of pressures so yep. remember that yep. for okay. tamponade. yep okay patient's critically ill and has a sudden decline in entitled co2 despite no change in oxygenation and ventilation so you had an entitled co2 monitor and the entitled co2 suddenly tanks so check your connections No, oh, all the connections are fine okay they're not going to ask you that on the outside <laughs> about checking connections and uh, your respiratory your respiratory status hasn't changed so why is an entitled co2 Tank if your respiratory status hasn't changed. What does end tidal CO two reflect?
2: Uh, your so it's expired CO two. So your acid based I mean, it your your exchange. So so
1: it reflects your cardiac output. Okay. Right. So, so right. So if your end tidal CO two suddenly tanks and the respiratory status hasn't changed, then it's a, it's a reflection that their cardiac output has dropped. Okay, okay. Or they've gone into cardiac arrest. Gotcha. Patient with cirrhosis and ascites who gets a large-volume paracentesis by the medicine service. Next day, he's oliguric, elevated creatinine. And they check a urine sodium, and it's less than 10 milliequivalents per liter. What's so, your diagnosis? renal. Good. And what's your treatment for that patient going to be? Albumin? Good albumin and so you want to volume expand and diuresis and you put them on a vasopressin so you on a vasopressin, or a okay. vasopressin analog gotcha what's the curative treatment for this patient may stabilize them that's not going to cure them there's only one curative treatment for transplant transplant
2: okay that was our quick fire all right. round. That was fun. And
1: I think that's all I have for critical care.
2: All right. Well, that wraps it up for critical care. I want to thank Dr. Martin again for the excellent trauma and critical care reviews for the app site. Hopefully, it helps everybody out there with their studying. Once again, follow Dr. Martin, Twitter at DocMartin22, right? Yep, DocMartin22. Yep, got it. And uh, head on over to the East Trauma Cast. Check that out as well.